Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Episode 59. Hello and welcome to the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together to share stories and make connections. It doesn't matter if you like wrenching or riding, whether you'd rather race or collect, and it doesn't matter if you're an expert or a newbie. If you've ever smiled about a bicycle, then you're in the right place. In this episode, I turn down very uncharacteristically the opportunity to follow a man who talks like Dracula back to buy a bicycle. We also hear from Charlie Kelly, who was there at the birth of modern mountain biking. He talks about riding those repacked clunkers down Mount Tam and not going riding with Jerry Garcia. And finally, we talk about seeing some spooky things while you're out cycling. Well, maybe not seeing them, but at least looking for them. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. So sometimes I realize how deeply inconsistent we are as human beings, including myself. Maybe that's part of the problem with the planet. But about five minutes ago, I was just sitting next to a pond, taking a little break, doing that little five minutes, take a picture of my bike, take a deep breath, moment is end type of thing. A guy rolls up to me in an old Volvo and goes, that bike. I'm like, what? He goes, that bike you know somebody who like to buy a bike like that and I go uh no <laughs> and then he goes what how do I sell and I go well, maybe maybe put it out in front of your house with a sign on it and then he drove off and I said you know, have a good day and I wish him well I mean, anybody who knows me at all knows that I should be totally into that. Follow a guy who has a accent like Dracula back to his house to check out a bike. Some mysterious bike that he claims to have. But, you know, then again, there I am just saying no and feeling like I, I just couldn't handle that right now. <laughs> Thoughts from the side of the road. (laughs) 
So what's crazy doing this podcast is when you reach a certain plateau and you have somebody who's really interesting reach out to you. That's amazing to me that I've been doing that long enough for that to happen. So Charlie Kelly, who's one of the pioneers of modern mountain biking, he was there with Joe Breeze and Tom Ritchie and Gary Fisher. He reached out to me and not only that, he's as smooth at giving an interview as he is with riding. The amount of editing that I had to do on the backside of this was probably the least of any interview I've ever had, including my own parts. So hats off to Charlie Kelly for A, reaching out to me, and B, sharing this awesome story. Oh yeah, and C, thanks for helping to invent modern mountain biking as we know it. Just to give you some idea of how good a storyteller this man is, the first story he told me was about not going bike riding with Jerry Garcia. And I was fascinated. So. I knew when he finally got into the stories where he was doing stuff, it'd be pretty damn exciting too. All right. Uh, well, my name is Charlie Kelly, and uh, I claim to have had the greatest bicycle adventure of the 20th century, which may or may not be true, but I will argue my side with anyone because in 1979, my best friend Gary Fisher and I rented a garage to build bikes in, and... Well, I like to tell people that if I'd seen what was coming, I probably wouldn't have lost so much money. <laughs> so, you know the story is legendary. You're a legend of, of the entire scene. So, where no, do you want I'm to start? I'm uncomfortable with that. You know, I, I, there are people that that uh, you know they'd get a T-shirt printed with that. Um, yeah, uh, let me just say, and uh, you know, while it's intellectually, I can observe that, yeah, events I took part in led to this and this and this, and look, it changed the world. On an emotional level, it's really hard to wrap yourself around having that kind of influence on the world. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's like, intellectually, you can acknowledge it. Emotionally, it's like, man, I, I can't can't deal with that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which uh, may be one of the reasons why my name is is so obscure. But uh, uh, I don't I don't have publicity people uh, making my name a uh, household word. Anyway, here's uh, here's a story I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you the story about how I met Gary Fisher because it's covered a lot of ground. There is this gentleman named Gary Fisher who is iconic in the bicycle world because uh, certainly his name was all over quite a few bicycles and uh, he is a very prominent figure in the history of mountain biking. Now, Gary Fisher and I were roommates for, gosh, about five years and pretty much inseparable for about ten years, but of course we actually had to meet at one point and this is how that happened. I had been hanging out with this girl that was kind of the Grateful Dead fan base, and she knew that I was kind of a fanatic about bicycles and a hippie, and she said, you know, I know a guy who's so much like you that if you ever met him, you guys would be immediate friends. Uh, his name's, uh, they, they call him Spider. That's all she knew about this guy. Okay, and uh, this is 1971 when you did not see a lot of adults 
on 10-speed bicycles. But shortly after she told me that, I saw a couple of guys on bicycles, and one of these guys was all arms, legs, and hair. And if you're going to call anyone Spider, that looked like the guy that would get that name. So I rode up to them, and I said, um, hey, are you Spider? I, I This girl uh, told me, uh, if you are, this girl told me I should meet you. And uh, he said, well, there are people that call me Spidey uh, because there's another guy that they call Spider and can't be two guys with the same name. But really, my name's Gary, and most people call me that, Gary Fisher, actually. And he introduced his companion, who was a little guy with long hair and a beard. He said, this guy, my friend's name is Marmaduke. Well, his real name is John Dawson, but everybody calls him Marmaduke, and he plays in a band with Jerry Garcia. The band is called the New Riders of the Purple Sage. So then I said, well, guys, where are you riding to? I mean, I'm on a bike. You're on bikes. Let's go for a ride. And uh, Marmaduke says, well, you know, actually, we're going down to the Grateful Dead office to look at cover art for the album that I just recorded with Jerry Garcia. And after that, we could go for a ride. So why don't you just come along with us, and after we take care of business, we'll go for a ride. So about somewhere between five and ten minutes later, because it wasn't very far, I was at the top floor of the Grateful Dead office in San Rafael, California. And I was there with Gary Fisher and Marmaduke and the bass player from the New Riders wandered in. His name is Dave Torbert. And we're looking at all these photographs and drawings and various, uh, you know, images uh, on, on a big table. And Marmaduke's asking me and Gary, well, what do you think of this picture? What do you think of that picture? And I'm thinking... Why do you care what I think? It's your album and you just met me, you know, but really, uh, he's, uh, and then he puts on the record and I go, wow, that's really a good record because it hadn't been released at that point. But they're asking our opinions about, uh, you know, various images and one that Gary really liked and talked about a lot became the cover, front cover of that album. Now, Gary didn't make the decision. Marmaduke made the decision, but he's there asking guys that he barely well one guy that he barely knows and one guy that he does know what they think and i don't know how much our votes counted all i can tell you is that the images that we liked were on the album so after we listened to his record and looked at some artwork then he said okay now we go for a bike ride so uh we were on the third floor so we had to go down to the first floor collect our bikes and we're on our way out and here comes jerry garcia and he spots john dawson and he says well john what's up and Marmaduke says, well, hey, Jerry, we, uh, we just picked out the uh, cover art for the album. So now we're going on a 20-mile bike ride. And I, I remember what Garcia said. He, uh, he said, you know, you're definitely not going to run into me on that bike ride. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and so we go on a bike ride. And it was a lot closer to 12 miles than 20. But the first thing that happened is that you know what happens when bike riders meet each other for the first time. You got to find out what the other guy has. And within about four or five miles, Gary Fisher and I are pushing each other and Marmaduke is long be behind us. And uh turns out that Gary Fisher had raced bicycles and I, at that time, knew almost nothing about bicycles except that I had one. And the woman was right. Gary Fisher and I became really good friends became roommates, became business partners, and to some extent managed to change the world just a little bit together. 
back in the day when Gary Fisher and I shared a house, of course we had these fancy Italian race bicycles, we both had Colnagos, at the same time being really bike oriented people, that's not what you ride down to the 7-Eleven to get beer, you know, because uh, you just don't. You know, it's like driving a Ferrari to the 7-Eleven to get beer. We had assembled a couple of old one-speed clunker cruiser bikes just out of parts laying around and, and not a lot different from all the, the beach bikes and cruisers on college campuses. I mean, everybody had, you know, when you could buy a balloon tire bike for 10 bucks, why wouldn't you, you know? So we had these balloon tire bikes that were our town bikes. The place we live is kind of hilly country and has a lot of hills and downhills and dirt roads and there were some guys not far away that were friends of Gary from high school who were already trucking their old cruisers up to the top of Mount Tam and just having these crazy wild rides down Mount Tam. Uh, now I never rode with those guys although I know them I know them personally but I didn't ride with them but uh, in our crew we had we started modifying our bikes, and Gary really was a pioneer of that, adding gears to our cruiser bikes and front brakes and making them, well, they, they were never high performance, but more high performance than they were when we found them. And so, because of where we live and because we're all a bunch of hardcore cyclists, uh, we started taking our cruiser bikes out on these pretty challenging rides, which would almost always involve going up to the top of some hill, because, you know, you can push the bike forever but eventually you're on top of whatever you're going up a pattern started to emerge and that is that you got to the top of the hill and there'd be stragglers you know what might take five to ten minutes for everybody to get up there because some people would be faster than others but eventually everybody'd be there and you'd hang around the top of the hill and you know if somebody had water or refreshments of any kind pass it around and uh, we'd throw the frisbee around but so you got a bunch of people sitting up on top of a hill and their bikes are all lying around. And at some point, somebody would like kind of look over at his bike. And at that point, you didn't have to say, hey guys, why don't we have a life-threatening race on junk equipment for no stakes, whatever. You didn't have to say that because it was on. Because <laughs> as soon as one guy looked at his bike, Everybody else was running for their bike. Every ride on these cruiser, modified cruiser bikes ended with this insane downhill, mass start, uh, you know, Le Mans start. Man, highly dangerous. The bikes were pretty marginal. There was one guy in our crew who was like NFL size. He's like a third bigger than everyone else. And also a sociopath. And those are all competitive advantages. And what happened is that he would bully his way to the front of the group, and then it was worth your life to try to pass him. This guy kind of like inspired us to say, well, you know, if we're going to have a race, it's hardly fair if this guy is in it. Because <laughs> he, he wins the race by sheer magnitude, you know, by being bigger than everyone else, you know, and meaner. And so because we're all real bike racers, we were familiar with what they call the race of truth, which is the time trial. That is, you're by yourself covering a distance, and the length of time that it takes you to cover that distance tells you what kind of a bike rider you are. It's the race of truth. So we thought, well, what if we had a downhill time trial? We could, like, eliminate this one guy affecting everyone else, and we'd say, see really what, what everyone really had 
you know, without any distractions. And so the problem is, how do you time something like that? And I came up with a timing system and borrowed a kind of couple of crude clocks. And the timing system is that you have synchronized clocks and agreed on starting times. And the guy at the finish line, if he knows when you started, he can, you know, subtract what he what the clock says now and get your time for the uh, for the race. And so on October 21st, 1976, I went up on the hill with a couple of, well, six of my friends. And we called this hill repack because it cooked your coaster brake so badly that as one trip down it, you had to go home and repack it with grease. So anyway, we're on top of this hill and we had a race and, uh, and we timed the race and somebody won it because it doesn't matter what kind of a race it is, somebody always wins it. And then another phenomenon emerged. And that is that people who lose a race want to race again. The guy who wins it says, I am the champion of the universe, bow down to me. And everyone said, well, you know, you got lucky that day because the sun was in my eyes and that's why you beat me. And so five days later, we're back up on the same hill doing it again with the, pretty much the same people. Because like I say, the guys who, who lost won another shot at the champ. And then it turned out that, you know, losing that race was almost as much fun as winning it because you got that road, that monstrously steep hill, absolutely to yourself, knowing that no one would be in front of you, that you weren't going to encounter any hikers or anybody like that. And you could, like, really find out what you had. And then, uh, if you were unsatisfied, well, you could come back the next week and see if you could beat that time. So, within... A couple of weeks, well, after, a, after I think three of these races, I went out and I bought real timing equipment. I bought a couple of digital stopwatches that timed to a hundredth of a second. After I bought, spent $150 on, on timing equipment, well, well, you're going to have to use it. So I started putting on the races and because I owned the equipment and put on the races, I became pretty much the king of repack. Nobody could have a race without me and the timing equipment and that launched me to a real leadership position in our little community of a couple of dozen bike riders. But the repack races started attracting people from other parts. People we didn't even know found out about it and started showing up for the races. And it just became the meeting point and the crucible for what became mountain biking because everybody realized after a while that, you know, these are pretty crude bikes. What if they were made as nicely as those Italian race bikes? And that eventually led to some people actually building bikes for that purpose. Building bikes for that purpose led to people building bikes, well, led to mountain biking in general. So uh, Repack was really the starting point for mountain biking. It wasn't first place where anybody raced downhill on bikes. They'd been doing that for decades before we showed up. But we were the first people that put rules to it and kept records. Because I know there were thousands of undeclared races before we ever had a, an official one. But someone has to do the official one first, and we were the ones who did.
how how long was Repack? Yeah, uh, Repack is 1.8 miles long. Uh, the average grade is 14%. And if you've ever tried to ride up 14%, I can tell you it's a chore. But 14% is the average grade, and some parts of it are a whole bunch steeper than that. You know? So in that uh, 1.8 miles, it's 1,300 feet of elevation change. And so how fast would people do it? Well, I uh, kind of calculated uh, based on the winning times and the distance, and it looks to me like you have to average about 26 or 27 miles an hour to win that race. On so an old clunker. On a clunker with blind turns and a really uncertain road surface. And uh, shaky br- and brakes that nah, barely work at all, you know. So anyway, uh, I can tell you from personal experience that there is absolutely nothing that turns your adrenaline pump on and leaves it on as long as downhill mountain bike racing. I mean, there is no thrill that can be, you know, extended that long. I mean, surfing, skydiving, whatever, they're all a thrill, but you don't get that kind of duration out of them, you know. (laughs) The question I always had, which I don't hear anybody ask, I, I think it's just assumed, would people actually bike up to the top or would they walk they the bikes that we were riding uh, nobody i knew could ride one to the top i mean we would we would either pick up uh, you know if you drive up you could uh, some of them rode up in a truck but even if you trucked up you only trucked up to about you still had about a mile and a half and four or five hundred feet of elevation uh even if you trucked up to the nearest point you could drive to uh and then some people would push their bikes up it because they wanted to check the conditions of the road and maybe, you know, kick a few rocks out of the way or something like that. Uh, but, yeah, people, some people would push their bikes up it, and some people would, uh, you know, come up in a pickup truck and come in from another direction. But as far as I know, Joe Murray holds the record for riding up Repack at around 25 minutes. Wow. He was the guy who's like, hey, hey I'm well, going to do it, no matter how ridiculous it's Joe seems. Murray was, at that time, also the national mountain bike champion, you know. So wow. So he, he was arguably the toughest mountain biker in the country anyway, you know. If people want to find out more, where would they go to? They would go to my website, which is fattireflyer.com. My book, the book is called Fat Tire Flyer. And all you have to do is Google that, and the Amazon page will be the very top response. So if you Google Fat Tire Flyer, you'll find it on Amazon. And if you Google uh, Charlie Kelly and and the word mountain bike, you're going to find out a lot more than you wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story on the show. You know where to find me if you want more. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, uh, pleasure and an honor on my end also. So thank you very much. Okay, take care. See you.
time to take a brief moment of thanks for the mid-roll gratitudes. I'd like to thank people in over 90 countries for the over 90,000 downloads. I really appreciate your support and giving it a try. It is an honor to be a part of sharing your stories. Some easy ways of supporting the show are to just give us a nice review wherever you listen. Thanks for those who've done that. You can also help share information about the show on any social media. And recently we got on Audible. So if you're on Audible, please consider giving us a follow there. It's actually kind of cool to see something I made right up there with all the audiobooks I listen to. Even if you have a preferred place to listen to us, following us on different platforms really does help the show. So following us on Audible, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Media, all greatly appreciated. Mostly posting just the episodes on YouTube, but there are a few other little nuggets that you can find there as well. So thanks for following wherever you can. Big shout out to Paul Combs. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Looking forward to doing the southern part of the airline with you some point. Thanks to everybody in the sticker army who's asked for and shared stickers around the world. It's a great, honest, and grassroots way of telling people about the show. If you'd like free stickers, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Helping with some of the costs associated with running a show like this, thank you very much to the people at Patreon who've signed up to be my Patreons. A new thank you to Cameron Green, and thank you to all of the other Patreons that I have there. You are a small but wonderful group, and I appreciate you. Starting at a dollar a month, you could help to pay for some of the costs of the show. You can stop anytime and it's wicked easy to find. Just go to Patreon and type up Bike Karma. Also want to give a big thank you to Fred Thomas from The Frame and Wheel for helping to support the show. So I was just going to talk about how I bought something from Fred recently, but because this episode took a little extra time to come out this time, I did the other role of being a seller on there as well. So yeah, I got an amazing deal on a winter jacket. Beautiful, made in Poland, like new, blue, verge, warm as heck. It's going to help me keep cycling through the winter. And I found it just by browsing on the Frame and Wheel eBay store. People know that the Frame and Wheel can give you more time, space, and cash by taking your no longer wanted bicycles, parts, and accessories and getting them sold. Fred does all the hard parts. He lists it. He photographs it. He deals with potentially crazy people. He packs and ships. And no matter how big a pile of stickers I send him, he's always running out because he puts one sticker in with every order he puts out. So this last time when he asked for stickers, I just got a big priority box and stuffed it with some of the parts and accessories that I knew I wasn't going to use. Yeah, I had a couple of Marie Kondo moments, but that derailleur was not sparking joy for me. And it will be sparking joy for somebody else. I sold the bike that goes with that bar tape. So yeah, after it was gone, I had a little bit more room. Pretty quickly, Fred sent me back an inventory, and it's fun sitting back, waiting, and watching stuff get listed, especially when you're not the one who has to do it. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, give Fred Thomas a try at the Frame and Wheel. If you follow him on Facebook or Instagram, let him know that you heard about him on the Bike Karma podcast. Don't forget to check out the Frame and Wheel website to see the many different options for selling your bicycle items. Thanks, everybody. Now back to the show.
Hey, this is John Diamond in Cernak Lake at Human Power Planet Earth Bicycle Shop, and I just wanted to remind you to do your ABC Quick Check. So A is for air. Let's make sure that your tires are inflated properly for the type of riding you're going to do. While you're at it, check the condition of your tires. Make sure there's no cracks. B is going to be for brakes. Test your brakes before you take off on your bike. Make sure your pads are aligned on caliper brakes. Make sure the pads are hitting the rim and not hitting the tire where it can actually cause a blowout. Pull your levers in. Make sure that the brakes engage before the levers hit the bar. If not, you need to adjust them. And C is for chain line. Take a look at your drivetrain. Make sure the chain is under tension. Take a quick look. Make sure there's no links ready to break. Uh, Gee, your drivetrain should be lubricated. Make sure your bike is shifting correctly. Maybe run it through the gears before you take off into traffic. And the quick and quick check is for quick release. Most bikes had quick release, but remember, you might have a bolted-on wheel. You might have a through axle, no matter how your wheel is held on. Let's make sure those wheels are going to stay on your bike when you ride. Just double check and make sure everything's tight, your wheels are aligned, and everything's running great. And lastly, take your bike and bounce it. Just bounce it on the ground lightly. You're going to hear if anything's loose or rattling around. I like to stand in front of the bike. I just cinch the front wheel and my legs. I grab the handlebars and I'll, I'll twist them side to side. I push my brake levers. I'll grab the seat and try and give it a twist. And I put lateral motion on them. Let's see if the bearings are loose. I'll just quickly do the same to my cranks. And I'll put the front brake on and push the bike back and forth. You should not feel your uh, fork rattling. The headset should be tight. It takes about as long to do as I just uh, described it. And now you know that everything on your bike is tight and ready to go. So I do my ABC quick check up here in Saranac Lake before I go for a ride. We're about six miles from Lake Placid, the home of the 1932 and 1980 Olympics, and we're in the heart of the Adirondack Mountains. We ride year-round here. We've got great summer riding, good road riding. Beta Bark Eater Trail Alliance has a, a huge amount of mountain bike trails, and something that's very exciting that we're riding on now is the Adirondack Rail Trail Corridor, uh, a 35-mile stretch of uh, railroad tracks have been pulled up and it's converting to a rail trail. We're going to ride it all winter. The snowbills ride on it, they groom it and pack it, and for the last couple of years we've been doing fat tire <laughs> bike rides at night. There's so much to do up here. Uh, the locals are friendly and, and they're avid riders. If you ever get a chance to come on up here, winter, spring, summer, or fall, bring your bike, stop in over at Human Power Planet Earth Bike Shop. We're at 77 Main Street. We're right next to a really nice coffee shop. We can point you in the right direction. And uh, remember, when you get up here, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, don't forget to use your human power. Thanks a lot, John. Been up there a couple times, a couple years with family vacationing. It's one of my favorite cycling locations. Hopefully I'll get back up there to ride with John this summer. When I'm out riding around, I slowly start to become more me. As I pedal, 
the things that aren't me start to gradually just drop away. The anger I feel from a social media post is gone. The despair from watching how people treat other people just starts to evaporate. And I gradually find my way back to my core. And for me, a lot of my core is constructed on hundreds of Scooby-Doo episodes. If you had asked young Tom a long time ago what he wanted to do when he grew up, and he was lucid enough to be able to answer what he really was thinking, it would have been that he'd want to live like they live on Scooby-Doo. Traveling the world with a group of friends who's always there, beautiful women and fashionable men, a sentient dog who talks to you in your own special language, traveling in your van, never worrying about money, meeting famous people like the Harlem Globetrotters and Jerry Reed. Sign me up. And to top it off, the thing that you focus on when you go from place to place is studying myths and legends and looking for ghosts and ancient creatures, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. While I grew up, all that stuff's still firmly in the foundation. So as I ride, I'm always on the lookout for cryptids. As a science teacher, I guess I'd say I don't believe in cryptids, but when I'm out on my bike, feeling at one with the universe, I'd also say I don't not believe in cryptids. To me, cryptids like the Jersey Devil and Sasquatch, the myriad of lake monsters and sea monsters, sighted around the world, in my mind, they all represent hope. The hope that something truly interesting could survive in this crazy world. That something that seemingly has no place could find a home and survive, live, thrive, Despite the way the workaday world wears you down, replaces magic with responsibilities, replaces hope with disappointments, when you're on the bike and stare into the water, listening to the waves, watching the wind, and you see a ripple that could be a log, or maybe it's a humongous snapping turtle, like the beast of Busco from Indiana. We all pick and choose the things that we believe in. Some of them make sense and some of them don't. But I think taking a peaceful moment to look through the woods to see if there's anyone there, looking at a riverbank for big footprints, or seeing the flash in the corner of your eye on a night ride, all of that hope of seeing something special, it's no less futile than watching politics and expecting politicians to do the right thing. Is it more silly to look for cryptids or to expect companies not to overcharge for insulin? I'll take my chances with the Grassman, Old Ned, and the Chukacabra. When I look for these crazy things on my ride, I remember how it feels to hope. And I know I'm not alone. There's tons of shows where people are hunting cryptids, looking for ghosts in spooky places, and seeing bizarre lights in the sky. These shows aren't new. It wasn't just Scooby-Doo when I was a kid. There was also In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine.
that one had real looking scientists and, and Spock for God's sakes. They were going after the Bermuda Triangle, looking at crystal skulls and aliens and the Loch Ness Monster. While the rational part of me thinks either these things don't exist or if they did exist, they're most likely probably dead a long time ago. But every once in a while, something crosses over from the supernatural world into the natural world. The coelacanth thought to be extinct for millions of years. Then they found some and then unfortunately they ate it, but then they found more. Many scientists in Europe thought the platypus was a cryptid. People in Iceland leave offerings for the fairies. And they're intelligent good people. So when I finally got to go to Loch Ness back in 2014 when I did the end to end, it was the realization of a childhood dream. I stood on the shore and I offered myself to Nessie. And while I didn't really want to be eaten by Nessie, I figured it'd be worth it to become part of the legend. So here I am at Loch Ness. One of the few places we found in the last six miles to get down to the water. I'm looking for Nessie. I don't see her. Anyway, I'm going to sacrifice myself to her if she doesn't do it. Nessie! Come eat me. Or hug me. Hug or eat me, Nessie. I've been waiting to see you since I was six. And Leonard Nimoy told me about you. Where are you? Nessie! Obviously that didn't work out with Nessie, but it was still a hell of a ride. And I never gave up on lake monsters. My daughter started going to the University of Vermont, which is right on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. While Nessie hasn't been credibly seen or photographed for years, and also had the other strike of a deathbed confession not too long ago that said one of the most famous photographs of Nessie was fake. Unlike that, Champ and the best photograph of Champ has been scrutinized more than any other cryptid photograph apparently, and it has not been able to be debunked. In all likelihood, I'd have a greater chance of seeing Champ than the Loch Ness Monster. Sorry, Nessie. So when we go up to visit my daughter and family up there, hi Chris and Ann, Alden and Rosie, every time we go up for a visit, I would ride around the lake and just kind of keep an eye there. One day, I just decided to start asking people had they ever seen Champ while they were cycling around the lake. Good morning. Could I ask you guys just one quick question for my podcast? What's going on? Yeah, Have you guys ever seen Champ while cycling around the lake? I think so. No. I, I think wish I, have. I haven't. Done. For real? No. Okay. Just at the Lake Monsters games. Because I've been to Loch Ness and now I'm here. And supposedly okay. you're more likely to see Champ than you are to see Nessie. Well, it's a pretty long I did not lake. see Nessie. It's like 180 mile long lake with over 400 feet of depth. So, I mean, there's there's people that have claimed to seen something over the years. Do you believe in Champ? Uh, there I was do. There was a picture taken back in the 70s by somebody on the shore that was sent into a crime lab and they, they analyzed it and said that whatever was on the picture was real. Yeah, so we'll see. All right. Maybe they'll find something. Cool. Thank yeah, you very back. much. Have yeah, a good day. Can I ask you a very quick question sure. for my podcast? Good. Oh boy. So, have you ever seen Champ while cycling around the lake? 
You saw him? No, I'm just, I do a podcast and I'm asking if anybody's oh. seen Champ while cycling around the lake. No, no, my husband keeps talking about seeing him now. No, he's taking it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Supposedly, you're more likely to see Champ than you are to see Nessie. If you go with the odds. If you guys would like a free sticker for my show. Sure. This yes. Is my husband, the whole way, have you guys heard Chuck the whole way around going, are we going to see Champ? Yeah. <laughs> oh, did he? Yeah. So, thank you. Thank so, you. So, four people, no Champ sightings. Uh, there's two more no. Okay. But there's two more coming. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate it. And these folks said that you two were the ones to talk to. Have either of you seen Champ while cycling around the lake? He's seen him twice. <laughs> Not really. No. no. Okay. Any other cryptids? Did they, I heard talk of Bigfoot. You might have seen Bigfoot while I'm cycling. Bigfoot have you seen Bigfoot while well, cycling? Read the book Devolution, and you'll believe it. Okay. Devolution. Okay. No, on the way up, I said we came through Whitehall, which is a uh, hotbed for Bigfoot, but just I've seen that on Discovery, just goofing around. But no, no champ sightings. Nope. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Devolution reading. Okay, cool. Good morning. Can I ask you a very quick question for my podcast? Sure. Have you ever seen Champ while cycling around the lake? <laughs> no. No. This is our first no. time cycling around the lake. Okay. So none, none yet. None okay. yet. Thank you very much. We'll let you know if you're here on our way back. Okay. Woo! Thank you. Good morning. Can I ask you a quick question for my podcast? Yes, sir. Have you ever seen Champ while cycling around the lake? I have not. Okay. Do you know anybody who has? Uh, no. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. The cool thing is that everybody knows who Champ is. It's not like nobody's going, who's Champ? Everybody knows who Champ is. Good morning. Can I ask you a really quick question? <laughs> All right. Good morning. Could I ask you a very quick question for my podcast? Have you ever seen Champ while cycling around the lake? Have not. Do you know anybody who has? Do not. Lived here my whole life, but no. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Good morning. Could I ask you one really quick question for my podcast? Go ahead. Go ahead. Have you ever seen Champ while cycling around the lake? No. No? Do you know anybody who has? No. Sorry. No. Okay. And we're not looking for it. So okay. Maybe that's why. Okay, thank you. Have a good ride. So yeah, I put myself out there, maybe got a little silly in front of some strangers. But one thing that I noticed is that the people who stopped and answered the question, they looked at me leery at first. They're like, oh, what's this question going to be? And as soon as I mentioned champ, they got a big smile across their face. And like I said earlier, not a single person asked me who champ was. Everybody, locals, people there for the day, Everyone knows who Champ is. If you think this is just two locations in the world, do a search on lake monsters and you'll see hundreds. It's like people want to have a possibly imaginary sea monster type thing living in the lake that's near them. Well, after interviewing those people and as an introvert at heart, I had to go out and ride on my own and reflect a little bit in a quiet spot on the lake at sunset. The wind's blowing. You can see the waves. Let's see how easy it is. I'm wearing my best prescription glasses right now. And you can see how just 
just the dark nature of the water and the light. Makes waves look a little weird sometimes. Really erratic patterns as well. Not huge, but interesting patterns. Probably not going to see Champ tonight. Still, it's pretty beautiful. A couple weeks later, Liz and I went for a bike ride. It was her first time in a bike in like 12 years. And she knew I was working on this story. So she she uh, let me ask her some questions about lake monsters. Not her favorite subject, but she was a good sport. So here we are at Lake Champlain. We're at Overlook next to a bridge on the lakeside trail. Liz has been biking for the first time in 12 years. We're stopping right now to look for Champ, the lake monster. I don't see Champ. Was there any suspicion that we might see Champ at all? No. No. Not, not even today. a little bit? No, it's not a full moon. There's a bunch of stuff going on. No. Parasailing. Tons of stuff in the water. Mm -hmm. Huge things. Mostly wood, some boats, giant trees washed up. No lake monster per se. Beautiful. It is beautiful. I'm sure that sounds like the bridge is going to fall apart, but it's really quite sturdy. Yeah. How was the Adler? The Adler was good. I got used to it. It was better after you adjusted the seat. Why did you decide you wanted to go for the first time in so, so, so very long? Well, it's beautiful here and I can ride a bike and I wanted to not miss out. That's why you learn how to do things. So you do them your whole life and not miss out on stuff. Yeah. That's good. Everybody says, oh, you're going to Burlington? You should go up on the river, walk in the lake, ride. <laughs> causeway blah blah and I'm like I don't ride a bike I can't walk that you know who wants to walk that far look at this it's you, beautiful you can't see this from anywhere else nope. this particular view stunning so it's huge lake yeah so I'm happy happy I'm here it's nice and I guess that's the point just getting out there and seeing something beautiful wherever your mind goes when it's relaxed and if that happens to be wondering if that was a lake monster you just saw, or if that weird growling noise from the side of the trail is a Bigfoot, I guess there's no harm done. I mean, the worst thing that might happen if you really do see something is you might pedal a little bit faster on the way back. That brings us to the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories Podcast. Thanks for coming along for the ride. As always, want to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. You can check them out at mobjackmusic.com or check out some of his newer work at Keller Glass. 
All the other segment music was royalty free and I appreciate those artists as well. So apologies for this episode taking a little longer to get out than I wanted it to. This should have been the October episode, so apologies for that. Thank you for everybody who's waiting patiently for their stories to come up in the queue. I appreciate your patience until I can give your segment the time and attention it deserves. But they are on a long but incredible list. If you have any story ideas for the show, or perhaps some comments, or suggestions, or maybe you'd like to be a part of our responsible sticker army, help us earnestly and honestly spread the word about the show, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. With the exception of the music and the very short snippets from Scooby-Doo and In Search Of, the rest of the Bike Karma podcast is the intellectual property of Tom Brown. All rights, including copyrights and trademarks, are asserted and reserved. Well, Daylight Savings Time, which is also called Mess Up Your Mind Time, has just started. Really, evening looks like midnight, and every day after work is a race against time to try and get some sunshine on your face before the sun goes down. But yeah, all of us in the Northern Hemisphere are in the same boat. You lucky folks in the Southern Hemisphere are looking forward to your summer season coming, but as we know from a couple episodes ago, you guys also got the magpies chasing you, so I guess it all balances out. No matter where you are in the world, whether you're heading into summer or winter, I hope you're doing okay and you'll be doing okay for the season ahead. If there's anything I forgot to mention in this episode, I am apologizing in advance. But I guess being human is part of keeping it wheel. Take care. <laughs>